Hi, John. Hey, Adam. How are you doing? When we met the last time, you remember this? I'm doing fine, by the way. Yeah. Perfect. And you? Uh, I'm doing well. Doing well. Yeah, last time we met, we're, I'm, we're trying to figure out which Java one it was, but it was it was many Java ones ago. Yes. <laughs> I just uh, try to remember whether it was at Oracle time or before at some times. I think it was time. Oracle time, but it was right after Oracle time, I think. Right after after the, the, the Oracle acquisition of Sun. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Now, the question is, what was your first computer? Haha. The Macintosh Big Mac 512K. That was my first computer. Wow. One of the few, you know, guests with Macintosh as the first one. I know, I know, right? My mom was a technical writer. She was a technical writer back in she was a work from home technical writer in the 80s. So, mm -hmm. she was doing she was doing remote work before we had internet or anything like that and Mm -hmm. And she would, uh, she would, we lived up north of, of San Francisco in Sonoma County. And, and, you know, every couple of days, you know, once a week she would drive down to whoever, whichever contract she was working at. And she would spend a couple of days interviewing the SMEs mm -hmm. on, on, on cassettes and then come back up and type it all out on her, on her Macintosh. Yep. Were these like software companies or, um, you know, it was everything. She did a couple of software things. She did like internal software for like, uh, a, a gravel company out of San Rafael, Shamrock, Shamrock gravel company. Um, every time we, we drive, drive down from Sonoma County, we'd drive by the Shamrock, the Shamrock, uh, uh, factory there. And she'd say, thank you, Shamrock. Cause that contract yeah. basically paid for the car we were driving in. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, actually, it's, it's uh, remarkable. So, okay, and what you did with the computer, you started to write uh, technical documentation as well? Uh, me? I actually, yes. I am one of the, uh, I'm, I'm one of those rare birds that, that got into IT and has worked at fairly high levels of fairly technical things, and I could not code my way past Hello World to save my life. I studied, um, I studied European studies, uh, philosophy, history, politics, and so forth. And got into IT going through with my mom. Um, got into IT doing. Wait a second. What it means right. is with the Macintosh, you did nothing Not, technical. Just nothing played technical games? at all. We had a we. Had, I I would write my short stories on the Macintosh. I okay. would play what few games were available on the Mac Macintosh. I believe. Dark you remember Castle. some titles, some, some games? There were very few games. Dark Castle okay. was the one that I that I remember playing, and I really liked. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but, but What's also, also interesting me, interests me. Uh, you said now that you studied politics. Yeah. So what do you learn, or what do you do actually? So what are the topics if you study politics? <laughs> right. Well, I studied European history, and okay. I can say that I'm I'm actually working in my major because I've been living in Europe um, pretty much ever since I graduated college. So okay. I, I, I studied about, um, I was really interested in communism, post-communism. This was, you know, shortly after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And I was mm -hmm. very interested in that transition. And then mm -hmm. a couple of weeks after, after getting my undergraduate degree, I was on a plane heading to teach English in Central Europe. And I've basically been in, in and out of, of the, the area my whole life since then. Yeah. Okay. So you really enjoyed, you know, the study. And then you say, okay, this is my dream. Yep. You went to Europe and stayed in Europe. Yep, stayed in Europe. And then I ended up bouncing around, doing a bunch of little of different things. I, uh, I was a, a music critic for a while. I tried my hand at journalism. Didn't like it so much. Um, what music? Um, what kind of music? We had, there was this place called Album City, which was basically uh, a local version of Amazon, but just with CDs. So I basically mm -hmm. ran the English language site. On, mm -hmm. on there and so I would I would do reviews of various CDs that had come out and we had a little you know we tried to make it more of a cultural thing as well centered, okay. centered around Prague and stuff and so I kind of bounced around from place to place and then then finally decided in which countries was, in which countries this is an interesting story no um, but place to place uh, professionally this was always out of Prague basically okay so professionally and why Prague? Kinda, just Prague just Prague Brno and Prague you know and then I went back to America for a while, um, mm -hmm. 2011 till 2019. Yeah, we came back. Okay, but wh why why you picked Prague? Interesting <laughs> choice. I had I was studying Russian um, in university, and uh, this was about the time of the the big Russian economic collapse, mm -hmm. post Yeltsin collapse, 
And I was trying to figure out where I was going to go. And Russia was not seeming like a very, you know, safe and stable mm -hmm. place to go at that mm -hmm. point in time. Uh, yeah. And I asked my Russian professor and he said he was actually had spent a lot of time in Prague, had a Czech wife. And he was like, you have to go to Prague. I will do mm -hmm. everything. I will teach you the language. I will teach you the uh, I will find you a job. I will do mm -hmm. all of that. Right. And um, and uh he didn't do much of any of that, but he did give me some phone numbers to people to call. And he gave me an old 1970s communist textbook um, hmm. to, to learn Czech with. Uh, and But that was it. That set me in motion. I wrote Do you speak in Czech, actually? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I speak Czech. Yeah. And um, how well? I mean, this is like... I speak pretty, pretty well. I mean, uh, not a lot of uh, not a lot of expats, you know, learn to <laughs> really master Czech, especially those who live in Prague. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I speak pretty well, although my son, who is making the transition from living in America to living here and has been learning Czech, always claims to speak better Czech than I do. But um, I, I, I'm not sure I agree with that sentiment. Yeah, yeah. this is true. <laughs> so um, um, this is what I knew. It's actually remarkable. And um, I was in Prague several times, conferences, mm -hmm. and I really enjoyed the city. Somehow, the old town is somehow, you know, small and cozy yeah. and nice. And it reminds me... Krakow is a Polish mm -hmm. city. Yeah. It's also similar to Prague. So if I'm, you know, in Krakow I'm or, or Krakow right now, I'm thinking about Prague. If I'm Prague, think about Krakow. <laughs> so it's actually very similar cities. So yeah. Krakow is a little bit larger maybe. Yeah. But, um, and, uh, and Prague is, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, Krakow is a beautiful city as well. It's incredibly hard to get to from, from um, Prague, though. You have to drive. Like for some reason, the train connections from here up to Krakow are, are, are really mm -hmm. wacky for some reason. Mm -hmm. yeah. What's interesting from Munich, Krakow, Posen, Gdańsk, Prague, this is uh, absolutely easy to, to get with uh, airplane. Yeah, with so airplane. No, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Never yeah. try train. And um, interesting. So, okay. So um, this is what I knew. So yeah. as we met in uh, at Java One, so actually uh, spent your time in Prague already, right? Yeah. Yeah, I bounced around professionally for a while and then um, finally took a job doing technical writing at uh, Sun Microsystems on the NetBeans project. So how you got to Sun? Uh, one of my best friends at the time was doing technical writing for Sun and I had done technical writing back in the States and done various other little tech jobs here and there. And, uh, and I got the, uh, it's funny, I, I got the offer and then there was some mix up with my paperwork because I wasn't, I didn't have a work permit yet. And they were like, well, we have to wait until you get your work permit, which back then took a long time. And then mm -hmm. the dot-com crash happened. And I okay. was sitting there waiting for my paperwork to come in going, I wonder if I'm going to actually have a job when this is <laughs> when my paperwork finally comes in. But it was all good. Got the job and uh, started working there. And I was there for 16, 17 years. And oh. I tell you, every time I thought I was going to get out of there, uh, I was like, okay, this is it. I got to go do something else. Some other opportunity would open up internally. And I mean, say what you will about the politics and the, the bureaucracy of working for, for big companies. But um, the nice thing about working for big companies is the ability to, to move laterally mm -hmm. into different mm -hmm. roles. So, so I started out as a technical writer and then as a web admin and then as a, a webmaster not a web web admin webmaster mm -hmm. for for the netbeans.org site doing but this is quite technical webmaster yeah i mean webmaster for us it was just managing on on facebook the content you know oh, okay. And, and, okay and and leading new design efforts if we we're going to redesign mm -hmm. things and so forth mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. um it wasn't really you know actually going in and doing any wordpress you know mm -hmm. uh, coding um And then, uh, and then I managed a team of technical writers. And then at one point they asked me if I wanted to try my hand at, at being an uh, engineering manager, which uh, was interesting, especially since, you know, I had all these brilliant engineers reporting to me and, and I didn't know how to code. And I thought that, you know, they would somehow dislike that, right? Or that, that you know, people would be like, why are we working for this guy? But actually it worked really well. What I found is that engineers 
much prefer a non-technical manager who admits he's not technical to a manager who maybe used to be a good coder 15 years ago and still thinks they're a good coder, even though they're not. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah. So yeah, it was, you know, I would basically, you know, tell them what needed to get done and so forth. And, you know, I left most of the architectural decisions to them. And whenever there were disagreements, because I couldn't come in with my own institutional knowledge and override anybody or make a call, we always had to try and find some sort of consensus. And, and and that worked really well for us, I think. So you also know Roman Strobel and all the details. Oh yeah, I know Roman and Hertian and you know yeah. all the all the NetBeans gang. And and uh, the woman, she was uh, I met her. Andini. Um, uh, no, Ruth. The... Ruth Kostner. You think it of Ruth? Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, and and um, I was a Java one, and she was also he interviewed me for NetBeans. I forgot her name. Tori. Tori Wilt. Tori, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I miss Tori. Our Tori the pirate. Yes. She yeah. was my manager, actually, uh, my first manager at uh, at Sun Microsystems. I think she okay. left by then. Yeah. So interesting for me, you know, um, I was always a freelancer, but uh, for me, you know, Sun Microsystems was like a shiny object. Mm -hmm. I just liked the company without knowing why from the yeah. beginning. And uh, I met you and all the other guys, Java One. It's like hey, everyone is nice. It's like in really in interesting, you know, interesting company. Yeah, and um, what interests me right now, what do you managed actually? Uh, as a software engineer was it uh, NetBeans development yeah, or NetBeans. what NetBeans mm -hmm. so I I was in Java tools all the way up until I made the switch to my current role where I work with mostly you know at the Java runtime layer um, but I was in Java tools developer tools and so forth uh, managed NetBeans uh, and was ahead of NetBeans as we went through like the the Oracle acquisition, mm -hmm. and then at a certain point uh, switched over to working on the um, Oracle Visual Builder pack or Visual Builder mm -hmm. application. Um, I know at Oracle Open World they just had a big announce there about releasing some some soft some big stuff that we were just in the incubator phase of when I left a couple of years ago. Um, so kudos to the team back there. For but you also work on Matisse, I guess, right? Yeah. So I started, when I started out at NetBeans, it was Matisse, right? Um, and Matisse was revolutionary. Yeah. Yeah. So I have to say Matisse, it was, you could just draw a swing application. Yeah. And it actually worked. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So I have a long storied, bloodied history with WYSIWYG developers and low code and, and, you know, my passion as a non-technical guy in a technical field has always been, you know, how do I make complicated technologies um, more accessible, more, and, you mm -hmm. know, with Matisse, I was just writing the docs. I mean, I wasn't involved in, in doing the design for that. That was uh, the people on the swing team and so forth. And. The thing I really liked about Matisse was that it took a problem that was ridiculously difficult before, like mm -hmm. doing, doing swing layout and swing GUI, you know, GUI layout was ridiculously difficult. Um, it took a tools first approach to it, right? Um, mm -hmm. Because it was the layout manager that swing, that, that Matisse used, you know, you could code it by hand, but it was written mm -hmm. specifically to be something that would be generated by a GUI tool, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it just went in and it was like, as you said, it was really, really elegant, you know, mm -hmm. just, you know, um, it, it's very difficult with these GUI layout managers and so forth, unless you're in a very tightly templated, um, format with a lot of these GUI layout managers, it's very difficult, um, to get that kind of precision, that kind of ease of use and then the beautiful responsive, you know, layout repositioning and everything else um, on the UIs that it designed um, was really great. And it was really, I think, because, you know, we controlled all the edges of the problem, right? You know, we, mm -hmm. it wasn't like trying to build a GUI editor for something that's going to run inside of WebKit, you know, somewhere else mm -hmm. where you, you don't control what's in WebKit or, you know, you have to use the APIs there. Those APIs can change, you know, behaviors can change and so forth. We controlled everything from the tools to the, to the runtime layer, to the, to the components that were inside of it. Um, and we really built it from the ground up. We said, you know, what is the experience that we want customers to have when they use the GUIs that are produced and what is the experience we want the designer to have to do it. And it was a huge success. And the, the only problem with it was that, um, that 
just about the time it came out, people stopped doing uh, st stopped doing Java GUIs, you know, and Java. What I what I used with um, Matisse for for Swing for enterprise companies, and what we managed to do is, we used just the a UI builder mm -hmm. to draw the UI, and then we had uh, like an implement we implemented an interface, and from the other side we had a kind of a controller, so we separated you know the generated code. Mm -hmm. from the implemented code, and it worked quite well. <clears throat> so actually, non-Java developers in a company were really successful with this approach. Nice. And um, so it was, it, it worked well, so it couldn't generate everything. So, you know, mm -hmm. we stopped with the actionlessness, mm -hmm. but uh, we delegated delegated the invocation to a, to a class, so it was testable, and this worked really well. Right. right. What I also remember, at Java 1, the keynote, and I think the Matisse was presented by Tor Norby, I think, right? You are thinking of, uh, no, I don't think Matisse was presented by Tor Norby. No, Matisse was Peter Suchomel and James Gosling on stage doing it. Ah, okay. Tor Norby was the visual web pack, which was uh, ah, okay. Java Studio Creator, I believe. It was a standalone thing. And that was, again, you know, low code, you know. Um, Were you also involved in this project? I was parenthetically involved with that. That was being developed out of a team uh, led by Tor Norby and, and others in um, in the the Bay Area. And that was originally supposed to be a separate, a completely separate mm -hmm. um, tool. Mm -hmm. It was released as a separate tool for a couple of times. It was built on the NetBeans platform. Um, but released as a separate tool, and then eventually was that was brought in as the visual web pack inside of uh, NetBeans, and and yeah, and so I remember uh, Tor Norby on stage because the the program crashed on him on stage, mm -hmm. and he did that like live debugging, changed a couple lines of code, rebuilt it, mm -hmm. and ran it on stage, and everybody mm -hmm. was like, oh, you know. <laughs> but Visual Webpack was released, and after Visual Webpack, there was another tool which was never released. Yeah. Yeah. So it looked great. I forgot the name. And it was um, Visual Webpack. I just used it as well. You could use those you know, SOA or whatever with right. uh, JSF. And, but there was another tool. I actually forgot the name. Yeah. So, um, and uh, Norby worked on that. Uh -huh. And it should be revolutionary, you know. But uh, it, it was never released. And I even remember a demo, a Java one. Mm -hmm. But uh, I was really excited, but we yeah, couldn't I test it. So. what that was. Um, gosh, the, the code name escapes me now. Yeah. yeah, so we, uh, I would put it to show notes. Yeah, and Visual Webpack, I mean, you know, the interesting thing is that, okay, Matisse, like you said, it had that nice, crisp, you know, separation layer between mm -hmm. the generated code and then how people would plug in. And, you know, the thing about these low-code tools is, you know, you give it to a non-coder, they get as far as they can, and then they need to get a coder involved. And mm -hmm. it's that, that handoff there, that intersection between the place where the low code person reaches a wall and they have to call somebody with coding skills and that coder needs to come in and and work with it that will define the success or failure of your of your product right unless you're yeah. going to have like a wix or you know one of these website builders where you just never even allow for that at all right the only thing you can do is 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 drag components around and 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 work through a property sheet you know but if you're building anything enterprisey Right, you're gonna need to have some some logic. You're not just you know mm -hmm. not just showing a, a menu or a price list for a yoga studio or something, and mm -hmm. and so and it's very you know very very difficult to do that uh, in a WYSIWYG style. So you're gonna need to bring in somebody who's gonna do some coding in whatever language it is, and, and it's really that interface there that is that I think defines whether or not you'll be you'll be successful. Um, we had so. Visual Webpack, again, you know, uh, some people might call it a failure. I mean, at the end, it did, it did you know, um, go out. Um, but we had an enormous amount of people using it. Um, and that's, mm -hmm. the, it's, it's also interesting, I think. Uh, I mean, the main reason Visual Webpack and Creator failed was because they were, it was all based on a JSP, um, mm -hmm. you know, JSP component set. And then the world moved on to JavaScript, right? Mm -hmm. um, so... Or JSF. There was also JSF. Yeah, you had your own, yeah, it was, it was your own right. component model. I forgot the name. There was yeah, a yeah, Sun, yeah. you know, component model. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was all based on that JSF component model. And then the world kind of moved on, you know, like stateful, you know, mm -hmm. stateful Java 2 EE serving up JSFs so was no longer how we did things and for a very mm -hmm. good reason. Um, but even along the way, like, you know, I thought it was, if I looked at our usage stats, we had a ton of people using it. And there's, there's something about these WYSIWYG tools I mean, they always, 
leave you wanting more but they also there's this great democracy effect of of allowing a lot of people to kind of get in and either people who know the language to generate a lot of stuff very easily or people who know the language to be able to split concerns you know and say okay I can set up a group of non-coders or non-technical people with the right templates and the right, you know, and the right mm -hmm. uh, component sets and the right, you know, basic designs. They can build out all the stuff they want and I'll just come in to, to hook it up in the background. Uh, so, you know, we saw a lot of people doing that. And then, um, you know, and it's interesting. It's, it's, a very, it's a very tough nut to crack and you always see people trying it, getting VC funding, and then, you know, kind of drying up, you know, uh, drying up a year or two later. But, you know, OutSystems is out there. They're doing it very, very well, right? Um, I worked on Oracle Visual. I actually was designed and built from the ground up. It was the first time I designed and built a product from the ground up. It was a great experience. Um, I have scars, though, to prove it. Um, but, uh, but What you did, actually, because if you, if you're not the technical, so it yeah. was like, you know, you said... From my perspective, it has to work, you know, this and this way. Right. And the the, the engineers try to you know to achieve that. Yeah. So I mean, at 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 the Oracle Visual Builder um, project, I was director of engineering. So and we didn't really have a lot of product managers. So I was a two in one director of engineering and product owner. So it was basically me and a couple of engineers sat down and designed the initial, the initial interface and the initial approach to data binding and so forth, which at the time I thought was really cool. Um, and, and then, you know, I just led the implementation of it and, and acted basically as the PM. And as a matter of fact, at a certain point, I uh, went ahead and, and, and transitioned from managing engineering directly into just being product management. And that's how I got into product management, which is what I still do today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so there are, you know, various people out there that are doing WYSIWYG and having great success at it. And I mean, the biggest, the biggest uh, example of that is Salesforce, right? Mm -hmm. so, I mean, this Salesforce and Apex and the, uh, and the, the, their ability to allow you know, business users to customize pages without having to, to make at least simple customizations without having to get um, engineering involved was a, was one of the many factors in their in their success. You know, having said that, if you talk to anybody who has to do a whole lot of Apex programming or programming, you know, doing real programming inside of the Salesforce platform, they're not super happy. But there's a lot of money in it, so you know yeah. you do it <laughs> but this is always the problem even you know the the story of orchestration esps mm -hmm. and uh was always a little bit problematic because um what you also have to do is when you write the code the tool has to be able to read it again to read it again yeah and uh and this was the problem how to move forward you know yeah. the, the clean separation between yeah. generated code and implemented code well, exactly i mean we had that at um you know, one of the, that was one of the main questions that we had to answer over over at Oracle was, you know, you're building, you, you design this nice designer, you know, it saves everything to some sort of metadata, you know, that's JSON or XML or whatever, right? Um, and you, what you want is you want the user to never have to, you know, to look mm -hmm. into that metadata. The last thing you want is to build a framework where people are going to have to go author their UIs in like JSON metadata by hand, right? You know, that's mm -hmm. not what you want, right? So you build these nice designers and then you save it down to some sort of format like JSON and so forth. And that's all good and well. And you say, hey, well, you know, guess what? You're never going to have to look under this. But then how do you work on a team as it? How do you branch it? How do you deal yep. with, you know, merge, you know? And at the end of the day, it just becomes, well, we got to put these JSON files under Git and then, you know, okay, fine. Mm -hmm. But now when it's time to like, you know, merge from one branch to another and you got, you know, conflicts, how am I going to know what to accept and what to not accept? So, you know, it is, it's very tough. Different people have taken different approaches to it. Um, but I think, you know, once you try and move past like, Hey, I'm one person building, you know, two pages of a like XML, uh, not XML, an Excel spreadsheet replacement, you know, and I'm just working by myself and it's all very easy to, hey, we're a team of five people working on an app in this thing. Um, things get very, very complicated very quickly. Um, Another yeah, challenge is testing, right? 
yeah, how to test the testing, thing. Right. You know, so how, how do you do the testing and so forth? You know, how do you then, you know, come in to when you do need to write business logic, right? How do you write your tests for that business logic? But also how do you do, you know, even, um, you know, unit tests, not unit tests, but uh, functional tests of mm -hmm. generated UIs? Is it even possible and so forth? What and, worked and the best in the Matisse project, uh, what we did is that for every text field in the UI, mm. we had a pair of methods like get and set, mm -hmm. and uh, they were in an interface and the interface was implemented by a controller by us mm. and uh, we could actually um, start this inter interface in a unit test mm. interesting interesting part is we read excel with the data and uh, and passed the data to the controller mm. and this is what people really liked because we got you know the excel sheets from the business department and uh, it was very accessible to non-coders nice and uh, so this was actually nice and um, what happened sometimes matisse become corrupt so it didn't work but usually just one view mm -hmm. so they quickly redraw the 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 uh the uh, matisse uh, front end and only had to implement the interface again and it still worked nice. so this was and this worked actually surprisingly well it was mm -hmm. but it was 10 years ago i guess right i mean obviously you know a lot of people might balk at that workflow like oh you have to you know redraw the thing when it when it when it goes bad but you know but it, you know with matisse redrawing that interface was like a matter of you know 20 minutes <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> it was exactly. so easy <laughs> yeah so yeah yeah so um so yeah. what uh, what we have uh, right now is a full full circle so what i hear more often is low code still no code mm -hmm. is yeah. coming back and server-side rendering, actually, right? So the SPA and PWA is no more that, you know, interesting. So people try to render everything on the server. Yeah. So I'm just waiting, you know, for actually JSPs coming back. JSF, I don't believe, but uh, JSP yeah. could actually work because, right. uh, you know, it does stateless. Uh, there's, they are extremely fast. Are EJBs back too? Uh, they are already back. Uh, no kidding. So um, last year... I delivered a workshop, like I explained AWS Lambda mm -hmm. and I used EJB model for it and it's almost identical. Yeah. So well. if you if you know EJBs, the same concepts apply to serverless AWS Lambda, almost identical. There's one difference. EJBs were thread-based and yeah. Lambda is process-based. But if you, you know, pick Java developers and explain them, so this is this is uh, crazy, but it's very, uh, very, very similar. Uh, in the podcast with Jakob Yenkov, uh, we we had a uh, um, uh, discussion about that, and and, and I explained to him those really one to one relations, or you know, pre preventing of cold start with min pool size. Right. Then you have a bulkheads with max pool size, and um, so it was. Uh, and you should not store, you know, anything to in local file store. Mm -hmm. This is um, if you if you are a good GB developer, you are a stellar uh, serverless developer as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Cloud native solution architect then. <laughs> Everything that was old is new again. Yeah, it's a trip. You know, I mean, when we were developing, uh, yeah, I mean, low code, it, the promise of it is just always so, you know, so there, you know, you've got these, you've got all these business units that are just starving for, you know, just, I just need this little thing here. I just need this little thing there. And then you've got centralized development departments that are like, get out of town. That your request is like so far down my list of priorities that it's never going to happen. And, you know, people just starving for like, Ah, there was just a way we could do it, just do it a little bit ourselves. It's incredibly difficult to get right. And you have to like change your business processes if you're going to want to, um, to make that available. So mostly a lot of the tools are all based around, can we get business users to understand and consume a REST API, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And it's interesting because you know, different people have different ideas about who that business user that's going to be using that, that interface is, you know, um, you know, people think that, you know, your, your, your head of marketing is going to, is going to use that interface. Well, no, you know, your head of marketing is generally not going to understand rest, you know, the internals of yeah. rest API or be able to parse a, a, a rest, no matter how good of, you know, drag and drop, you know, I'm mapping this, you know, mapping this field in the JSON payload to this, you know, field on my client model and so forth, you know, like there's just, you need somebody technical, you know, but maybe not like a full stack developer. I mean, that's, that's the whole point, right? You know, I think most departments have somebody who's got some technical skills, can do some scripting, can do something. I mean, just look at, um, you know, Oracle Apex and how long that's gone 
you know, just mm-hmm. allowing people to build web APIs by just, you, you know, leveraging their PL SQL skills, you know. Even uh, I used once Oracle Forms. Right, 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 right. Even it was also right. also worked uh, well enough. Yeah. And, uh, sure. yeah. Oh, my God. Do you know how many legacy Oracle Forms applications there are in the world? A lot. A yeah. lot of legacy Oracle Form applications. And what I also see, that the data is moving closer to a database. Mm. So uh, it's also a trend that uh, I wouldn't be surprised that, you know, these thought procedures are back. They are not called thought procedures anymore. Mm-hmm. There could mm-hmm. be a Graal VM functions in Java and they run inside an Oracle yeah. and do inside something. And um, right. so this is the first one. And the second one, we get edge computing, you know, on the edges. Mm-hmm. And then we can get, you know, there, data living here and accesses something there. But uh, the challenge is, you know, uh, how to coordinate this because right. the data is split across uh, several regions or worldwide. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard to, to coordinate, but this is also interesting movement. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, regarding these uh, low-code bags, so t- to this, I think the main problem is the amount of visual clues or how to call it, you know, the amount of arrows you need to mm-hmm. implement a mapping. So um, yeah. you mentioned this visual builder. And uh, what I remember, the visual builder was also possible to do a SOA for mappings. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if you even simple things, you have two, you know, two objects and I would like to map, you know, the fields. Yeah, so I in know. shortest amount of time, you get your uh, 10, 20, 30 arrows. Yeah. Yeah, and for can. coders, yeah. and I would even say for non-coding person, it would be in one point of time maybe maybe even easier, you know, to use a good code editor instead mm-hmm. of not drawing the arrows because right. they're really hard. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, you get carpal tunnel system syndrome using some of those gooey, those those you know drag and drop wheezy wig you know tools. Mm-hmm. Especially you've got a big you know JSON payload that you need to map you know map like fifty fields or seventy mm-hmm. fields to to mm-hmm. local client model or or doing some SOA processing. Right, where you're doing some server side rules where you're, you know, gonna take some information in, run some function over it, and then, you know, pop it out to, to something else. Yeah, definitely you just you get a lot of lot of pointing, a lot of clicking, a lot of, you know, what if my connection drops, I just lost a bunch of work, you know. I mean there's there's lots of things there to uh to have to to look at. And I, I remember, you know, when we you know NetBeans always, but if I look at how NetBeans evolved and how, um, you know, IntelliJ evolved, right, you know, NetBeans always bet on the, like, let's democratize, let's, you know, bring people in who, pay, you know, maybe don't have the skills to, to yeah. code every single thing and so forth. And IntelliJ just said, editor, 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 mm-hmm. editor, right? It's mm-hmm. the editor, you know, I mean, they got other stuff around there, but it was just, man, just make the world's best editor hands down. And, you know, they've been able to do very strong business in, in a field that we all thought was completely commoditized 10, 15 years mm-hmm. ago. Nobody mm-hmm. thought you could charge for tools anymore. Right. Yeah. You know, we thought that, you know, IntelliJ, well, you know, they're this nice little, you know, boutique niche you know business over here and you know they'll get some some people who have lots of money you know mostly you know but mix of like really strong execution on their on their engineering side and a really smart business model um Mm -hmm. and distribution model um you know hats off to them i think anybody who's tried to make money in developer tools over the last 15 years knows how almost completely impossible it is and yeah. these people just try and tread water until somebody buys them. <laughs> you know why I like NetBeans actually. The one of the reasons is uh, first there was uh, there were no plugins to install. I can mm-hmm. download NetBeans and just go. So this yeah. was uh, I'm a consultant. So incredibly important for my projects. The second thing is you had basically two shortcuts: uh, command dot I think or alt enter, alt mm-hmm. enter and command space. Mm-hmm. With that you can achieve you know eighty percent of everything. So this was a huge deal because I went into projects you no. Know, uh, there were fresh Java developers. Okay, take this. This is two shortcuts, and here we go. Yeah. Uh, IntelliJ is the opposite, mm-hmm. and I'm actually surprised that this is so powerful or so, so, so popular, not powerful, mm-hmm. because um, I know lots of developers using IntelliJ, but, but they don't even know a lot of shortcuts. Yeah, I know. So yeah. they're using them the IntelliJ, but they are not really using this. Yeah. And uh, so I ask you know, I don't like such a thing. So because if I use a tool, I will really use it, right? Right. And um. And uh, the next thing is um, many developers use, you know, the Eclipse bindings or Emacs binding in IntelliJ. And uh, the IntelliJ bindings are really hard to remember. And mm-hmm. actually, once I was at the conference and I asked the developers, 
So uh, I think delete was like command Y or something. <laughs> and I say, why it is command Y? And it told me because it's from Russian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This yeah, yeah. Y st- uh, stands for, uh, I forgot the name. Uh, this right. is like U. And uh, and this yeah. means, so, okay, now I got it. Because, right. um, you know, in I think in NetBeans, it was command E is mm-hmm. erase. I could mm-hmm. remember. You know, yeah. Eclipse was command D, delete, no problem. Yeah. IntelliJ, I think, was something with Y. It's like, yeah, yeah, why Epsilon? Yeah. Why Epsilon, <laughs> right? And yeah, I, I, mean, I didn't the, want uh, it. You know, and, and the feedback, John, the feedback yeah. from developers, why you not change, you know, the bindings? No problem. But the problem is, if I change the binding and I'm in a project with other developers, yeah. we cannot share you know, the IDE. So what I really appreciate using the out-of-the-box experience has to be good enough. And maybe I can customize some specific things. Mm-hmm. And right now, for instance, I do a lot of web and Java as well. Yeah. And I use Visual Studio Code a lot. And mm-hmm. it's gaining momentum like crazy. So um, I, I was uh, two weeks ago uh, in, 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 in a conference and I asked you know, developers, uh, web developers, who knows uh, WebStorm? No one. Everyone used Visual Studio Code. So they, they, they say, okay, we don't know it. So this was actually crazy. Yeah. In in the shortest amount of time, you know, how Visual Studio Code took off. And even companies like Oracle, there is no there's GraalVM plugins. Right. I'm using the Quarkus plugin. Microsoft contributes Java plugins, which is crazy. Yeah. So um, yeah, I really like it. But having said that, I tried NetBeans 15. And NetBeans 15 is crazy fast. Yeah. So if yeah, you yeah, use yeah. Visual Studio Code, it is a, a little bit laggy. But NetBeans is super fast. Right. So this is actually interesting. Well, I mean, the interesting thing is, I mean, I know that for the scripted languages, for the Pythons and the JavaScripts and the HTML and so forth, a lot of people are, are using those. I I don't think you can get proper Java code completion, though, and like error highlighting and so forth inside of Visual Studio yeah. Code. I mean, yeah, I use it all the time. No problem. Yeah, really? Yeah, re- really. So you, uh, you have to download the uh, Microsoft Java runtime, and uh-huh. the Microsoft Java runtime includes the Red Hat runtime, Okay. And you get, you know, run tests, go to test, generate tests, refactor, jet, get us and set us, constructor, uh, rename. So I would say. Will it highlight oh, errors like compilation? Yeah, yeah, errors? sure, sure. Really? And, and, and yeah. And, wow. and what, what I do, the cool story is I, I use Maven a lot. So mm-hmm. this is, um, I go to a folder and say code minus n dot. And it opens Visual Studio Code in the folder and everything is recognized. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I do like that. I do like that. Yep. Yeah, this is what I like. I can even open a script, you know, for project. I can switch between project and just mm-hmm. opens five Visual Studio Code uh, windows per module one window. And it's, it's more like editor. But control shift backtick and it opens terminal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah. in the terminal in Visual Studio Code, I can run Maven yeah. and click on the errors and I can switch to editor. Yeah. So I would say you have to try it if you have something to do with Java yeah. because Visual Studio Code support is getting better and better. It is and, incredible. And it's funny because we, we talk about that as like, wow, cool. But this is, you know, this is functionality we had in all the IDEs, you know, 20 yeah, yeah. years ago, right? Yeah. You know, but, but it is very interesting that, that, you know, the rise of Visual Studio Code, even for those, I did not know that, that you could get the Java code completion and the error highlighting and those things. How about refactoring? Does it do refactoring yet? Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, so, uh, you know, um, this is similar to NetBeans. Uh, yeah. It is command and dot. And this is like, you know, the uh, alt enter NetBeans, so it suggests things. So you can create a field, can extract constant, uh, rename, delegate. So I would wow. say whatever I need is already there, wow. but it's there for two years or longer. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, what I do, if, if you like, go to my YouTube channel, there are YouTube shorts, and I do everything with Visual Studio Code. Cool, cool. All yeah, right, so like, you know, f- yeah. Um, so um, it's interesting. And... Um, and why I use Visual Studio Code, not because, you know, it is better than um, Visual Studio, uh, sorry, IntelliJ or NetBeans. The reason is um, I also have to do something JavaScript work, mm-hmm. you know, with JavaScript right. and lit HTML web components. So I can use the same tool for both. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember we had, you know, we we're always trying to provide the poor man's poor man's uh, code completion and error highlighting and so forth for JavaScript, which is always very difficult because not static. I was to test an HTML5, I remember. Huh? I had to test something for HTML support in NetBeans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember when we did our HTML5, yeah. our HTML5 stuff. And again, back then, we kind of tried to do the you know more integrated thing where we built... Um, we kind of built the, the the equivalent of you know Google the the Chrome Code Tools you know the, the mm-hmm. Chrome Inspector and so forth into into NetBeans, thinking that you know gee wouldn't it be cool if you could like control what's happening in the browser directly from your coder and as you're coding things the browsers just update and so forth and and you know got some eyeballs on that but um, but 
then it became very hard to to maintain and and you know people just you know i mean cdt chrome developer tools just became the standard you know i mean mm-hmm. everybody just worked in chrome developer tools and so so you know once you get to a place where a certain technology a certain tool or whatever is just gained dominance you know it, it's best to just cut bait and 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 try to fit in and complement that tool as much as possible you try and match it feature for feature even if you were successful you probably wouldn't get a lot of mind share just because mm-hmm. you know those things just start taking a life of their own you know what i really curious is um, i don't know whether you uh, heard about uh, fleet this is the new ide from uh, intellij mm. is written in kotlin and it looks like a little bit like visual studio code okay so i'm really curious how it gets you know adopted by the current intellij developers right and uh you know what is the different differentiator to visual studio code so mm-hmm. you, you really have to look at this right um it's called fleet cool i'll have to check that yeah. out yeah so what you're doing right now still low code right nope nope i went from low code all the way over to the complete opposite end of the spectrum i'm down inside the internals of the jvms now i work for azul systems and I am doing product man- leading product management for our um, highly optimized builds of OpenJDK called Azul Platform Prime, and uh, for the cloud native compiler, which is which is some very cool new functionality that I think has the has the potential to change a lot how how uh, how we deploy Java in the cloud. Uh, but yeah, so I went from uh, low code front end. Um, citizen developer uh, tools to the internals of the JVM and garbage collectors and and JIT compilers and so forth. Mm-hmm. It's been a great um, great switch, though. I mean, with so many of the, you know, uh, it it really feels like the it feels like Sun, you know, in this company. You know, uh, a lot of the old Sun developers here, but also just that culture of um, that culture of of you know very you know engineering led developments trying to solve really hard problems but do so in a way that really provides a lot of business value for people um that's all really good and and after working at you know i talked about the good thing about working for a big company is that you get lots of opportunities you know the bad thing for working at a big company is that you know the company's doing trying to do 5000 things at once you know and 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 you know it's it's hard to get synergy between everybody it's it's very nice to be working at a place where everybody in the company has got one goal and one goal in mind and that's just to make the world's best job around times and and everybody's pulling pulling the oars in the same direction it's it's quite nice mm-hmm. what i'm doing right now i try to look it up because i wrote a blog post i cannot find it anymore what azul mm-hmm. did back then yeah, they that. had a real hardware it. yeah they had a real hardware. Oh, back in the day, yeah, yeah. yeah. Azul used they were to like, have, yeah. We what was the out, name of the hardware? Yeah, you know, you know. Um, it was. Oh God, I want to say Velo, but that's not. Um, no, no, no. It was V something? I it think was V. It was v. I, and I cannot find my own blog post, so which is long ago. Um, yeah, it was a specialized Java server with a special Java runtime on it, mostly for um, financial trading institutions, which is where Azul kind of made its chops early on. Because it looked beautiful, the machine. And yeah. I blocked about this. I was uh, at Java 1, and I saw the machine. There was, like, host with 50 CPUs. It was incredible back then. Right, right, right. It was, like, you know, larger than anything else. And I was really stunned. Like, wow, there's another company at some time, which, you know, has hardware. Right. And and then and then you started with Azul. And actually, I use Zulu in projects a lot. to sure, support sure. it. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm using this a lot. And you said that the Prime will do... a huge impact in cloud why this yeah yeah yeah. so zulu we've got two you know what we do is we make java runtimes and so when it comes to java the zulu builds of open jdk were really the best supported builds of of open jdk for a long time i mean adopt open jdk kind of got lost in the forest a little bit for for a while um and you know with their you know their tck Mm -hmm. um problems with oracle and so forth and and azul was really killing it with, with, with Zulu, getting that out there, um, and also selling support for it. So companies that, that wanted to reduce their, their support bill could, um, could go from, from paying Oracle to, to paying, um, Azul. And so, yeah, Zulu, Zulu was very big, you know, it was the default JVM for GitHub actions. It was the default JVM. Oh, I didn't knew that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was the default JVM for, um, 
for for Microsoft Azure before they decided that they wanted to start doing their own builds of OpenJDK. But GitHub Action is huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. For GitHub, we got massive usage from GitHub. Now, yeah. now it's no longer the default. Now you can choose which one you want mm-hmm. and stuff. It used to be the only way you could do it, and then for a while, and then it. And and um, so so now you can. There's more control inside of GitHub about what which uh, which which JDK you want to run your your actions on. But um, but yeah, I got a lot of usage through that. Um, so that that is just like core is just like it's just Open JDK. Its whole value prop is that it is exactly the same in every way as Open JDK. We do some stuff like you know we have packages with JavaFX in it and so forth. But but. Um, Prime, on the other hand, is OpenJDK, right? Um, mm-hmm. We we take open the OpenJDK code base. It's not like it's a green room implementation, or you know, it's an alternative implementation like GraalVM is. It's it's OpenJDK, but then we just just take out certain components and we replace them with uh, with with more optimized versions of them. And and yeah, you know, it, it's kind of funny. I think paradoxically, you know, these days there's more JDK versions. To choose from than there ever yeah. has been. You've got Coretto, you've got Open, yeah. you know, you've got Coretto, you've got Microsoft's builds, you've got, you know, Temerin builds, you've got Zulu, of course. You know, Azure has their own builds of Open JDK. You got Oracle, of course, um, and there's there's so many builds, and then there's you've got GraalVM and so forth. And, and paradoxically, I think the more builds there are, the more people seem to think, oh, well, just Java is just all the same, right? Because so many of those builds really are just vanilla repackaging of OpenJDK. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and people, but there are, you know, and here I'm thinking specifically GraalVM and, and, and Prime, you know, the, there are, you know, JVMs that actually are materially better, measurably better um, in certain aspects of how they run. And, you know, one of the ways that it's better is just, you know, is just speed. You know, we just, you know, your workload will just run fast. So what's the difference between Zulu and Prime? So Prime basically takes OpenJDK, which is Zulu, right? And we take the, we swap out the JIT compiler for our okay. um, LLVM-based JIT compiler, which is called Falcon. And then we swap out the garbage collector for our C4 pauseless garbage collector. And, you know, we were the first ones to really solve, um, you know, garbage collection pauses, stop the world garbage collection pauses. And we've had that in production for JDK 8 and JDK 11 for a long time. Um, now there's new, you know, there's, of course, ZGC and Shenandoah coming to market um, and really, you know, starting to mature and, and become usable. And the latest I saw that... Uh, ZGC just uh, just released the, the the proposal for generational support in ZGC. So kudos to the ZGC team. I know that's a that's a huge step there for them. Um, we're very happy to see you know to see Pauseless Garbage Collecting collection becoming mainstream, um, and you know we've we've been in that game for for quite a long time. And so yeah, what we're trying to do is, and then you know so. So consistency of execution, you know, eliminating outliers, eliminating hiccups and pauses and so forth. You know, when you've got an SLA that says everything needs to return in 100 milliseconds, or even more extremely, if you're an if you're a you know financial trading institution where like every nanosecond is money, um, then you know having that consistent execution and not getting big outliers when you do stop the world garbage collection is a big deal. Um, just faster code. So our LLVM based JIT compiler just produces code that is just materially, you know, faster and, and by, by a lot, like, you know, 20, 40% faster, um, than, than the hotspot code. And then the last one is like the warm up characteristics and, you know, mm-hmm. um, when you're warming up, you know, you go through the, the regular cycle of, you know, I know, to me, Java is kind of like that guy from uh, from Memento. You know, he's yeah. like, you know he you know he wakes up and he goes, "Well, what am I doing now? Uh, I guess I'm doing this thing. I have no idea what this is. What is it? It's Kafka? I'm yeah. Kafka. Okay. Uh, well, let me let me run it in the interpreter for a little bit and see what's hot, and you know, and then I'll you know start kind of compiling those things, even though that JV well not that JVM because it's probably a container, but you know, even though that system has run that program thousands of times. So there's probably another 300 nodes running that exact same program. It should it should have long-term memory. It should know, you know, it should know like, oh, you're running Kafka. 
I know what methods you need to be hot for you. I know how, you know, what optimizations I should be, I should be providing. And so we have a ready now project that does just that. It, it saves the profiling information from, from when you're warming up an application and then other VMs can load from that, can front load all this stuff. So you can skip the whole, the whole interpreter and profiling um, stage of the application and front load as many of those optimizations right up front jump right into it and then the other thing that gives you is because you know things get hot at the beginning right they get optimized you know but you know maybe at the beginning you were doing a bunch of application loading you know and and, and getting set up and you get all these optimizations and then you get 10 minutes into the run and now you see something different you have to you get a deop storm and you have to re-optimize all that stuff and that affects performance but and you are pretty technical i have to say no uh -huh. You are very technical. <laughs> I've been I've been down for, in the for, of the JVM. It has been the biggest challenge of my professional career, and it's been the most fun of my professional okay. career for sure. I didn't want it to to uh, to technical to ask two technical questions, but what you are explaining right now is crazy. So it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. So not bad for an old poli sci major, huh? And, yeah, this uh, is very good actually. <laughs> yeah. So so by profiling the application throughout the whole life of the application, we can see that, you know, which optimizations you actually needed for your steady state. And so we can load those up at the beginning so that you don't get those DOP storms. So mm -hmm. it's really interesting because, you know, when you apply those things to, you know, okay, so those are, that's nerdy technical stuff. Those are cool technologies, but like, why does a customer care? Right. And so mm -hmm. when you approach something like, you know, total cost of ownership and, uh, you know, people's, you know, people's AWS bills and cloud bills just blowing up right now. And everybody's just exactly. trying to get things under control. So you look at like the total cost of ownership of something, um, you know, it's the way that you can combine things. So like, let's take, for example, what we can do with Cassandra. So we were looking at Cassandra and we were like, okay, so with Cassandra, let's figure out which configuration, and we're going to test all the configurations, we're going to test all the, the garbage collectors, including the new garbage collectors, which configuration can just get the most throughput through a JVM at one time, right? And so, you know, we did them all, and we found that, you know, Prime, of course, got the, got the most because of our, um, because of our um, you know, JIT compiler provides such better optimized code. But um, so, yeah, so when we looked at, you know, looking at Cassandra and we testing all the various configurations of it, we were looking at, okay, so which, you know, configuration can we get just the most throughput through through a VM of a certain size? And, and we saw, I think it was G1, right? Got the, after Prime, of course, because Prime got the best mm -hmm. um, with, our, with our JIT compiler, uh, you know, was G1. What's the difference actually in throughput? Oh. So what is the difference between a stock OpenJDK and the highest optimi optimized prime? Uh, well, it depends which workload you're working on, but um, I think our Renaissance workloads, we see about 53% uh, um, wow. faster code. Um, Kafka, we see 45%. Solar, we see about 35%. And then with Cassandra, we didn't just do a straight throughput thing. I mean, on, on our straight throughput, um, we saw... Um, what, yeah, we got what, uh, 115,000 ops per second. Wow. And the next best was CMS with 83,000 ops per second. Um, now, but the thing is, that's just pedal to the metal, full saturation, right? Just how much can you get through yeah. that with no, not looking at all at like what your response times are and nobody runs like that, right? So what people say is, look, I've got this Cassandra app and all my queries need to respond within 100 milliseconds. And then you try and figure out, okay, so how hard can I push one of, mm -hmm. these, one of these VMs before I have to start spinning up some additional ones to, to mm -hmm. add different load? Um, and if you looked at um response latencies whereas just straight throughput cms gave you the best throughput it actually gave you the worst response latencies as far as your max you know your variance mm -hmm. in, in response latencies so what we did is we developed this um, testing framework called tussle and which stands for throughput under service level expectations we wanted tussle. to call it mm -hmm. tusla but we thought okay that you know a certain yeah this could be some problems yeah. so uh <laughs> so um and that's a framework that basically what it does is it says okay first let me test what's your max what what's the top that i can get through your system mm -hmm. right and then it sets that as the top max and then it goes back and it says okay now 
tell me what your SLA is, right? And now uh-huh. I'm going to take like, let's going to start at like 20% of your max. And then how, uh, how does tell me work? Is this like a custom uh, switch on JDK level? What's Or that? You said tell me. What does it mean, tell me? Tell me is like a custom switch on JDK. Oh, no, 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 no. J- so so what, what you want to say is that, you know, what, what, you want the, um, what you want the benchmark to tell you is... is ah, okay, okay, me, yeah. okay. So what you want the benchmark to tell you is how much can I get through this configuration while still maintaining my SLA. So the okay. benchmark first finds your max where, where you're not doing any kind of response time. That, that's just mm-hmm. the total. And then it mm-hmm. starts at like 30% of that and then 40% of that and 50% of that. And it just increments it and it tries to run it and it just shows, you know, was I able to, make, to meet that SLA? If I was, I'll try the next step. If I wasn't, mm-hmm. I'll stop there. And, you know, when you look at that, like 100 millisecond uh, response SLA, CMS, which was the best at throughput, couldn't maintain a 100 millisecond max, you know, like 99.9 percentile couldn't maintain it even at the lowest levels, even at 20K, right? Okay. Um, so yeah, it's it's really interesting. And then you can really go into like this holistic thing where you're like, okay, um, you know, how can I start changing things? You know, maybe things like instead of- I have a question because I would like uh, to, to, to tell you something. Uh, so first the question, because you are uh, somehow technical already. Yeah. So you know crack, right? Huh? The coordinated restart at checkpoint. Yeah, crack. Yeah, yeah, we love Java on crack. Yeah, so you are, you are somehow involved in, with Crack? Yeah, yeah, we're uh, we're definitely um, looking at Crack, or it's a very exciting, uh, exciting you know opportunity, I think. Um, Because you know, Crack is the solution to the problem you said, right? So what Java will do, it will store a checkpoint. Right, right. Yeah. So Crack, I mean, well, Crack, Crack is a little bit different. Here we're talking about like different levels that you can go up as far as um, being able to. Um, Uh, being able to scale your application and also storing it's similar to crack in that um, it is the reference to memento you to say to know yeah, if yeah, you mention memento so I exactly. thought about crack like, but I will wait with crack maybe you don't know yeah, yeah, about yeah. crack but yeah yeah. yeah yeah so ready now what it does is it stores the, the profiles and then it makes you like redo you know re, mm-hmm. you know redo the compilations you just know which compilations they are yeah. and so forth so and what crack, I understand from Azul is that you have a Uh, prepared optimizations for popular workloads so mm-hmm. I can load the workflow, workload and don't have to optimize, right? This is what... This is what we're trying to get to, yeah. I mean, what yes. we want to do is kind of crowdsource the optimizations, you know, mm-hmm. um, as far as... But, you know, I mean, even like getting to, you know, delivering a, a pre-baked image with some, you know, the, optimi- the actual optimizations you will eventually you end up with are always based on what usage patterns you're seeing and those are going to vary from use case to use case yeah. even if you're using like just kafka or just cassandra the way one person uses cassandra is going to be different than the way another person uses cassandra it's going to lead to different optimizations but there's you could provide a baseline you know um that would be a semi-warm jvm that people could jump into and then it would mm-hmm. it would base on it or the other thing you could do is you could use something like crack um, which takes a checkpoint of the entire, um, yeah, it takes a checkpoint of, of the entire um, state of, of the, the process. And then you could take that checkpoint anywhere. You could wait until like after main, you know, you've got everything warmed up, you know, snapshot it there, export that snapshot, and then bring up more JVMs from that one snapshot. And you'd be jumping right into that with a very low amount of time. The only thing about Crack um, is that we need to, um, it does require some changes to your application because anything that is state that needs to be saved and then rehydrated, you have to implement those things with, um, with a, a certain uh, you know, code pattern and so forth. But um, the good news is we've already got Quarkus has already um, has, a, uh, has accepted our Crack patch um, so that you can run Quarkus on Crack and, 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 um, reinst- and reconstitute those apps. I think Micronaut is coming soon, I believe. Mm-hmm. So we're getting good, uh, good traction. Um, but, you know, well, um, still, still early days there. We've uh, proposed an open JDK project for it, um, which, is, which is getting some, uh, getting some acceptance. And, and, uh, and yeah, it's, it's exciting stuff. It's definitely resonating with people who are just, you know, they're trying to use Graal native image and they just can't, you know. Uh, are you also working on native image? 
on cross or are you also working on native no no, no. this is not a pre-compiled image this is a profile of it's a snapshot of the no the but uh, is it possible to use uh, no native image with zulu or you say we are not working no, on no, it? no 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 that's that's growl so so yeah. uh, you know the zulu and and prime are both just straight open jdk builds even with growl now going into <laughs> open jdk um you know we're not currently you know looking at that some interesting i use um the um, JVM on uh, on serverless AWS Lambda. Mm -hmm. And the interesting part is if you use Node the JVM with the JIT, the execution gets faster and faster. So um, you don't have to pay usually for the uh, cold start or you pay for the half. Mm -hmm. And then uh, it is actually cheaper than GraalVM. This is why I was curious. Yeah. Because what the, whatever you mentioned is, uh, what it will mean is actually the um, execution time is going to be faster. Yeah. And I have plenty of memory anyway because, you know, to run AWS Lambda, I have to buy uh, with memory the CPU. So we are usually having a 1.7 gigs of RAM to have one CPU. Yeah. And uh, and then you can actually save money because uh, you are paying for gigabyte seconds. So this was really interesting. Uh, what, what you said, this is why I'm asking now. Yeah, yeah. What I also found super interesting is, because I was uh, curious about the native image, that the um, your uh, Zulu Prime, because it's based on LLVM, you yeah. have a nice native integration. So you can actually integrate native code Internally, which also is, I had you know the problem several times in my projects because we have some uh, yeah. libraries which you have to integrate, and this is looks also interesting because LLVM is the entire Apple chain is also best uh, based yeah. on LLVM. Right. So um, maybe it could be even possible you know, to call Swift or whatever from 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 Azul. Yeah. Oh, I should look into that. Yeah, yeah, you should. Straight from Zulu, from from uh, yeah, from Prime. Because be Swift is also LLVM. There's there's no reason not to use it, and uh, the entire chain is LLVM. So yeah. Thank you. All it right. was a lot of fun. Where people can find you now? Mm -hmm. and I'm, in, I'm in Prague. If you're in Prague, come by and uh, and and uh, have a drink. You can uh, also look me up, jcheckerly one um, on Twitter. And uh, um, if you want to learn more about our products, come to azul.com. Or Fuji, I guess. Or Fuji. Yeah, we got a lot of stuff on Fuji as well. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. It was really nice to meet you again after ten Adam, plus it was great years. Chatting. Great chatting for sure. I hope to run into you at a conference sometime soon.